Well, in preparation for our time in the Word, I want to read for us this morning our text, Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, open that with me, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, when you get there, you can stand up in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read this for us and ask you to follow along. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if you're there, say word. Pretty good. Okay. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the word of the Lord says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. I don't know if you recognize me in a tie. Uh, I've already been complimented on it. That sounds egotistical, especially when I'm about to preach about humility. Um, but uh, I told some people, don't, don't, um, don't expect this every week. It's a special occasion, and uh, Mr. Charles bought, bought me this tie, so I thought I'd, I'd wear it for him. But, uh, and so just know that next week I will not have a tie on. Uh, but I'm excited to be uh, with you this morning as we consider this text together. And I uh, ho- again, I hope you had a Merry Christmas on behalf of McKay family. We wish you a m- Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And so, um, but let me begin just by praying for us before we begin. God, we thank you for your all-sufficient, trustworthy word that you have given us. And I pray that now as we consider it, that Lord, you would begin softening our hearts right now to receive it, to be challenged by it, oh God. And Father, we do pray that as we, God, sit underneath your word, that Lord, our hearts would be convicted of sin. That God, our hearts would be in awe of who Jesus is. And that we would be utterly amazed at the incarnation what Christ has done coming to earth in the form of man and going so far as even to die upon a cross for us. Lord, we love you. Be with us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Shane said we come to the last part of our series on the advent of Christ, on the attributes of Christ. 
And uh, this week we'll be considering the humility of Christ. And so uh, in this last week, this is kind of, this will be the Christmas sermon. And it's not the regular uh, Christmas sermon that you find in Matthew or in Luke chapter 2 and things like that. But uh, we, we, amen, thank you. Uh, we we want to consider the attributes of Christ and particularly what it means when Jesus does come to us in the form of a baby. But who is he? What is his identity? What is his characteristics and his attributes? And so this week we will consider humility and what that means for us as a church and as individuals who are part of uh, in Jesus Christ. So the main point of today's sermon is this, is that the humility, humility of Christ should undergird and compel humility and unity in the church. The humility of Christ should undergird and compel humility and unity in the church. There's a building called uh, El Enchufe, uh, that's Spanish, uh, Spanish isn't very good, but uh, it is in Madrid, Spain, and El Enchufe means the plug, and that's because it looks like a plug. And uh, El Enchufe is not known for its interior design, it's not known for its exterior beauty, it's actually considered to be one of the ugliest buildings in Madrid, Spain. And so it's not known for its exterior beauty, it's not known for its interior design, what is it known for? Well, it's actually known for how it was built. It was built from the top down. A building built from the top down. Kind of strange, right? Because how do we usually build buildings or houses or anything? From the bottom up, right? You build it from the bottom up, you create a foundation, and you build from there. But this was actually built from the top down. I can't explain to you how it was done, but that's where they started. They started from the top, and they went all the way down. And this is kind of the approach that I want us to take this morning in, uh, in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Is it's going to be a top-down approach for us. And what this is going to look like is that we're going to discuss unity uh, in the church and humility as individuals, and then work from the top down to discuss well, what's the foundation of that? What is the foundation of our personal humility and the unity that we have as a church? And I think we'll get to this point, and this is how it's a Christmas sermon, is that the unity and the humility of, of the church and individuals in the church is founded upon the advent arrival of Jesus Christ. Is that in his birth in vision for a week, if you say one more word, I, 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 you know, I, you can't, I'll take this toy away from you, whatever. You, you go through the, the list of cliches, you know, uh, I'll turn this car around, right, or I'll take this, I'll take TV time from you, or my mom's favorite, oh, here's my mom's favorite. Don't make me pull over on the side of the road and spank you in front of everybody. So, yeah, right, right. So it wasn't, it, for, my, for my mom, it wasn't just about physical pain and spanking. She wanted the humiliation factor into it, too. She wanted passing cars, she wanted me to know that passing cars were seeing me get spanked, right? And so there was a physical pain and humiliation factor in it. So you throw out all these threats and all these cliches, and, and then ultimately you just get down to this. Can't y'all just stop bickering? Can't you just get what? Can't you just get along? Right? And minus the threats, this is actually feels like Paul's plea to us in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2. Is that he, he's basically saying, church, stop bickering. Stop going at one another. Can you just get along? Is that verses 1 through 4 is Paul encouraging the church and calling them to unity and peace and same mind, one-mindedness together for the sake of the gospel. And so let's consider this, that there seems to be, if you look in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, flip over there just for a second because this is going to set us up for verses 1 through 4, is that there seems to be going on a disagreement within the Philippian church. 
uh, among some of those who are part of it. If you look at verses uh, 2 through 3 in chapter 4, it says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Synthith to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it seems like Paul is addressing a certain disagreement that has arisen in the Philippian church. And so he's making this plea for unity and peacefulness and like-mindedness because this, these disagreements have the potential to erupt in disunity, discord, or division in the church. And so in an effort to basically extinguish any discord that could potentially erupt in the church, Paul calls on them in verse 1 to reflect on the qualities and the spiritual fruit that you have together in Christ Jesus in the church. Look at verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, is that these are the qualities that should be present in the life of a local church because we are in Christ Jesus, right? And so he's not saying if, as in like, these may or may not be there. There's a question whether these are in there. No, he's saying if, like the word since, like since these are among you, if these are among you, it's an assumed fact for Paul that if you are in Christ Jesus and you are a congregation, you are a church, a body of believers, these things will naturally overflow. They are the spiritual fruit of being together in Christ Jesus. So you should, as a church, we should, as a church, have encouragement, have comfort, have sympathy, have love together, have participation in the Spirit together. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, following Jesus Christ as a church body. So these are the lifeblood of the community of faith. This is who we are. This is what we have together. And so he's not only saying, reflect on these things, which I think is a good application for us. Do you, do you commonly reflect on the, the spiritual fruit that we have together in Christ Jesus at Crosspoint? Do you reflect on these things? Man, it's so sweet here at Crosspoint. We have participation in the Spirit together. We have comfort from one another. We have encouragement from one another. We can draw sympathy from one another. We can draw affection from one another. He's calling them, reflect on these things. Reflect on these things. Which I think is, a, let, me, let me just sidetrack for a second. It's easy to point out the bad things, right? It's easy to point out the bad things. But it's really hard to point out what you have and the good things that you have. And I think that's Paul's point here. You can reflect on the bad things, sure. You want to find a problem? You can find it. But if you want to basically cultivate church unity, then reflect on what you have in Christ Jesus by the, by the Spirit in one another. Encouragement, sympathy, participation, comfort, love, affection. And so what he does is he says, don't just reflect on these, but think and consider these things. He says, think or consider three times here in these verses. And it's used through the language of sameness, oneness, uh, like-mindedness. And so he's wanting to say and encourage us to fortify the commonality that we have with one another. Fortify the commonality. Because we have one goal and mission as the church. Fortify that with one mind, with one heart, with one love. Fortify that and remember that you are basically gathered together for this one purpose is to make Jesus Christ known. And this is why we have a church mission statement. Though you may not, you may not know it, it may not be the first thing off, off the top of your lips, but Crosspoint Baptist Church exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people, 
and for the glory of God. That is our mission statement. That's what we're rallying around as a church. That's what we are purposed to do here at Cross One Baptist Church, to make disciples of all nations. This is why. So despite we may disagree on budgets, and we may disagree on you know, buildings, and we may disagree on carpet, and we may disagree on coffee, whatever it may be, is that we can gather together around this one common pursuit of making disciples of all nations, despite what we think about all those other things. Despite what we think about all those other things. So no, no matter how insignificant the things that we may disagree on, we have one common goal. We, have, we are united and we can get to the Super Bowl. Their goal and their mind and their pursuit does not let them get sidetracked by, by small things. And here's the indictment on the church. The Saints, the New Orleans Saints, an NFL football team, is doing better at putting disagreements aside and working towards one goal than the church is. That is sad. That is sad. That an NFL football team is doing better at pursuing one goal together despite their common differences on things. The NFL and football team should not be leading the way in this. The church should. And what that means is this. Warren Wiersbe says it really well is that the church isn't called to uniformity. That's not what I'm saying. I want everybody to make sure. It doesn't mean that we have to be uniform in everything. We all got to dress the same way. We all got to think the same way. We all got to style our hair the same way. No. We all, that's not what it means to be a church, is that there has to be uniformity. Uniformity is not unity. I want to be very clear with that. Uniformity is not unity. Paul is calling for unity. And unity means gathering together around one common goal, Pursuing that despite the differences that we may have on smaller, insignificant things. And so our goal is our mission statement to make disciples of all nations. And that we are to have one mind, same mind, one love, one spirit. And this keeps us together. Despite all the minor issues that we may have. Now how do we do this? How do we do this? Everything that Paul is encouraging us in these first four verses to have unity among one another, to, to be the same mind, the same love, this one heart, this one goal, this one pursuit. How do we do that? And Paul's going to say this, and this is what he will take the next uh, three, verse 3 through 11 to do. He says, in order for you to have this church unity, you are going to have to humble yourselves. You are going to have to have humility in this pursuit of unity for the sake of the gospel. You're going to have to. Humbling yourselves is a requirement for church unity. And so what does humility, what does humility look like? What, what does it entail? How do we show humility? Well, Paul goes ahead and he gives us the answer. He doesn't leave us up like, y'all figure what humility is going to look, look like for y'all. No, he, he tells us this. He gives us three things. Look, what is humility? It's not doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's what humility is. It's talking about our motives. You've got an agenda? You've got an agenda here? Well, that's not humility then. If, you're, if you have a hidden agenda that you're just trying to work and navigate things and you're doing things for your own benefit and out of vain conceit to puff up yourself, to you know, make yourself look good, and you're working that angle, that is not humility. That is not humility. So humility is not having these hidden uh, underneath agendas second thing is you are actually to count others more significant than yourself so it's not only about motives it's about perception how you view people so you you view people and you value them you put them on a value scale 
You say, well, they're not better than me. Oh, they're not smarter than me. Oh, they're not better looking than me. Any of those things. Well, Paul's saying that's not humility either. It's not just about motive. It's about perception, how you view people as lesser or greater. He's saying, no, you, you value people more than your own self. And thirdly, it's this. It's not only just about motive and about perception. It's also about others' interests. Consider the interests of others above your own. So when you make decisions, your first question is, how does this affect me? What's this going to do for me? Right? So humility is a necessary instrument. It's a necessary instrument for us to have church unity here at Cross Point. Or any church. Because without humility, we will become silos and islands unto ourselves. That's not a church. A bunch of islands that just happen to meet on Sunday mornings, that's not a church. And so it's going to require us to humble ourselves, to consider the interests of others, to value people more than our own selves, and to fight against any hidden agendas that we may have deep down in our own hearts. And so what does this mean? Well, it's going to require us to be really sacrificial to humble ourselves. It may mean this. It may mean that we may not always be comfortable. We may not always be convenienced by what is decided. It may not always be our own interest. It may not always be our cup of tea. It may not always be what we would have done. It may not fit our skills and our schedule. It may require us to give something up. We may not always get our way. And when we don't get our way, what it means to sacrifice is to be long-suffering despite when the dice don't roll in our favor. That's what humility is. This is what humility looks like, and this is what required for the church. When we don't get our way, do we pick up our ball and walk home? That's not humility, and that is not sacrifice. And we're not just doing this just to do it, just to, because it works. As one author said, humility is not a pragmatic strategy for a united congregation. It's conformity to the mindset of Christ. So when, when we talk about humility, we're not talking about it in a pragmatic sense. Let, hey, let's all get on the same page, humble ourselves because it works, and we'll, we'll become a big church. If we just humble ourselves, this is just is kind of the instrument we'll do. We'll become big and bust the doors down. Let's just all be humble, and this will be the way in which we do it. It's not a pragmatic strategy. It's not a church growth model. We want to do it because it's the mindset of Jesus. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we want to be like Jesus. And so it's not just a way in which we want to bust down the doors and become the big church in town. No, humility actually is we want to be like Jesus. And it's not just we want to do it just because it works. And so let's do a church evaluation right now, Cross Point. No pens, no paper. How are we doing right now? You don't have to answer. Just think, how are we doing right now? How are we doing with this? Are these qualities in verse 1 true of us? Do we have encouragement? Do we have sympathy? Paul's saying, humility, humility. How often when you make decisions for yourself or for others, do you consider other people's interests? Do you find yourself asking the question, how does this affect me? How is this going to work out for me? What is this going to do for me? Paul's saying, ask yourself a different question. How's this going to affect somebody else? How's this going to affect them? How's this going to change something for them? Is what Paul, he's wanting us to reverse our, our thinking on this and how we ask ourselves these questions. How do my actions and decisions affect others? And lastly, I, I, 
I want to just say this. This all begins of how you view the church. And we kind of already talked about this a little bit. How you view the church. Maybe you could right now care less about the church's unity. You you, you could care less. Who who cares if we're united or not? Who cares? Let's just all come to church, leave, and, and, and call it a day. Who cares? Maybe you have no problem with insulting the church, criticizing the church, slandering the church, belittling the church. If so, allow me to warn you real quick. The church is the bride of Christ, which he purchased with his own blood and which he put his own spirit within. He loves his church for whom he gave his life for. And he will not take kindly to those who seek to slander, who seek to destroy, and who seek to criticize his bride. Just as you wouldn't take kindly of somebody speaking ill of your bride, he won't take kindly to somebody who speaks ill of his bride. Because he gave his life for her. Change the way you think about the church. And so, our own pursuit of church unity, if it's by our own, our own ability, if we're trying to make this thing work, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. If we're trying to conjure this thing up and maneuver this thing on our own, it's going to fail. We're, we're too flawed and we're sinful human beings and we'll conquer ourselves. We will conquer ourselves. But thankfully, thankfully, we have God's Spirit to empower us and we have God's Son to show us how. To show us what humility looks like. Let's consider point number two. The foundation is the humility of Christ. Christ's humility is the foundation of church unity. And it's, he's our example of humility. Anybody, uh, any kids in here? Anybody get Legos for Christmas? Anybody? No? Coop, you get any Legos for Christmas? No? Okay. Anybody else? No? Waylon Walker back here. Oh, Mary Jo, you got Legos for Christmas? Oh, sweet, man. What, what, what's the picture on the front of the box? What are you trying to build? An ice cream truck. That is great. <laughs> that is great. The only thing Legos are good for, uh, for parents, is um, making somebody um, say mean words when you step on them at night. <laughs> Yeah, they're terrible. But uh, but Legos are fun because when you get a box of Legos, you know what you get? You get instructions in the box that nobody looks like because it tells you how to do it and all of them. But you know what the most important thing about Legos is or the most important thing that you need in a box of Legos? You need the box. You need the box, right? Because if you, it, you know, I know a lot of us like just throw out boxes. Who needs boxes, right? But Legos, it's very important for the box, to have the box. Because you can have the instructions, and they'll tell you how to do all things. But if you don't have the box and to see what this, the ice cream truck is supposed to look like, it's going to just look like a, a bunch of jumble, right? You need the box. And what's so great about verses 5 through 11 is this, is that Paul in verses 1 through 4 has given us the instructions of what church unity is supposed to look like and what's that supposed to entail and what's required to have church unity and humility. And then he's going to give us the box. He's going to give us the picture on the box in 5 through 11. And guess who's on the Guess who's on the box? Jesus. And so Paul doesn't just say, this is what humility looks like. This is what unity looks like. This is what you're, you're supposed to do. He says, let me give you a picture of what true humility looks like. 
It's Jesus Christ. From his birth to his death, he is the picture of perfect humility. Let's consider this. This is the transition in verse 5. So he says, all these things, humility. He says, then have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Basically, Jesus had the same mindset of humility, of putting people's interests above his own, of valuing people above himself, uh, uh, of con- not, not operating in conceit and selfish ambition. He says, Jesus had the same mindset. Look at Jesus. Look at him. And so, Paul is commending us to consider Jesus' life and his mindset. Well, how do we see Christ's humility? Well, we have to consider one thing real quickly is this. It's really subtly noted, but Christ's pre-existence here is subtly noted. And Paul is wanting to tell us about Christ's pre-existence because that's where it starts. Is that you want to see the gravity of Christ's incarnation and his humility and his humility and his crucifixion? You have to see where it all began, where he was before he came and incarnated himself here on earth. Just look at verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. This is speaking of Christ's preexistence. Who was, who he was in the form of God. John 17, 5 says it really well. It says this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is Christ's preexistence. Is that Christ was not created. He was not made. Christ has always existed. God coming to dwell with man in the person of Jesus. And that being in glory with the Father before the world existed, He did not take His status, His position, His power, and His authority and exploit it for His own advantage. That's what what it's going on to say. That though He was God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Is that though having all these attributes, though having this divine nature, he did not use it for his own selfish interest. This is, this is how Paul is contrasting these things. These things that are the opposite of humility in verses 3 through 4, you know, vain conceit, selfish ambition, you know, loving your interest above others, you know, considering yourself more valuable than others. Jesus didn't do any of those things when he incarnated. Is that he actually considered the interest of others when he came in as a baby in the manger. He actually considered the estate of others. He actually considered our humble estate, our sinful estate, when he came. And so, he didn't consider using his glory or his position as an out or an instrument to hold dearly to for his own benefit and self-interest, to cling to selfishly. He didn't exploit his person or his power. Mitchell Chase says it really well. Paul is teaching that Christ did not view his status as something solely for his own advantage, something to exploit at the expense of others. Instead, while in the form of God and having equality with God, the Son acted on behalf of sinful creatures and considered their helpless estate. So Jesus being the pre-existent one, never created, always having been, existing with the Father in his glory, considers the humble and sinful estate of others. That is humility. And so, he becomes incarnate, verses 7 through 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a serpent. So no, he didn't grasp, he didn't exploit, he didn't take advantage of his position and his identity. Rather, he did something different. He became man. 
And when he became man, he didn't empty himself. That, that phrase, empty himself, isn't that he was losing something, like he was losing his deity or his divinity or any, anything of himself that is in his divine nature. No, no. He didn't empty himself. He actually took on something. Humanity. He took on humanity. He didn't lose anything in his incarnation. But he emptied himself and made himself nothing, becoming a servant. Look, it would have been easy for him to become incarnate and be born into a royal family, be born with a silver spoon in his mouth, be born into you know a, a, a huge conquering king, right? That would have been easy, but no. He became incarnate and poor, lowly, born in a manger, right? That's what's so that's what's so all striking about the incarnation. That Jesus existing as the pre-existent one in the glory of the Father comes down in the in a baby, born in a manger, with no influence, no with no regard by the world. The thousands and the millions did not show up at his birth. He did not have a royal birth as we see in England, right? No, he had none of those things. Being born as a servant. And this displays his perfect humility. The one through whom everything came into existence. Whom the universe was created through. Has been born as a servant in the likeness of man. That he is fully God. Fully man. Born in a manger as a servant. And him serving isn't just in his birth, but he serves throughout the course of his life. His humility is, ser- is shown through his servanthood. I mean, all of you probably remember John 13. When he does what with his disciples? He gets on one knee and he does what? He washes their feet. He washes their feet. The Savior of the world, the pre-existent one, gets on a knee and washes dirty disciples' feet. Now, if anybody could say, I'm too good for that. No, 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 that's below me. The the only person who could have said that was Jesus, yet what do we see him doing? Washing his disciples' feet. Not considering his own interest, but the interest of others. This is why he came. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. To give his life as a ransom for many And so his humility isn't just expressed and displayed in his incarnation, but it's also, he goes even a step further and says, it's displayed in his crucifixion. And being found in human form, being fully human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Is that his sacrificial love and his humility goes even further. Not just in his incarnation, but he humbles himself to the utmost point to death. Right? So from the glory from which he came, he comes down, still being fully God. And he incarnates himself. And he humbles himself by voluntarily subjecting himself to death. John 11 tells us this. Is that that you may think that Jesus was just overtaken, that Jesus may have just been duped or something like that, or maybe, maybe he was overpowered and says, you know, what, John, what the book of John tells us is that Jesus says, no one took my life, but I gave it. And so Jesus' humility is about giving. It's about offering himself voluntarily, even death on a cross. That, that, that emphasis right there is not that he just died, 
but that he died even on a cross. That a humiliating posture before all people, stripped and beaten. He goes even to that point of showing his humility to die on a cross. And T. Wright says it really well. The real humiliation of the nation, verses 9 through 11, is that the final say isn't, isn't Jesus' death, but God raised him from the dead and he gave him a name that is above every name, which is a pretty astonishing phrase, right? Because for Jews, what would be the name that is above every name? Yahweh, the unspeakable name, right? And so when Paul's saying, he gave him the name above every name, for the Jew, that's, I mean, the wheels are turning. Hold on, the name above every name, the highest name of the earth, that's Yahweh. And you're saying that he has that name? So Paul is affirming Jesus' deity, that he is God, right? And he says that not only, this, he's, not only is he going to be given the name that is above every name, Yahweh, but at his name, everyone will bow to him. And every tongue will confess. Now, this is not saying everybody's going to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. No. It means that every single person, whether ones who have received him in faith and repentance or ones who have rejected him, will all at the end of days acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. If you are in rejection to him, you will bow down to him and confess that Jesus is Lord. You will acknowledge that Jesus is the victor on the final day. If you're his enemy, you might still continue to reject him and you will be punished for your rejection, but you will one day acknowledge that he is Lord and that he is one. And this is Paul, he's using Isaiah 45 to make this point. Let me read Isaiah 45 verses 22 through 23 for us. This is speaking of God, and Paul's using this to talk about Jesus. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a world, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul's taking Isaiah 45 and he's saying, this is true of Jesus because he is God. He has been given the name that is above all names. And so Jesus, his humility is displayed from his pre-existence, from existing in the glory of the Father, from all eternity, from eternity past, incarnating in the Son, a humble baby born in a manger, humbling himself even more to crucifixion, death, and then being highly exalted to the throne. Michael Bird says Philippians 2, 5-11 is about the pre-existent son who was equal with God, who voluntarily took on human form and was finally acknowledged as the Lord at the end of his redemptive mission. This is Jesus, and this is the glory of Advent. This is the glory of Christmas. The humble Savior comes to us. The baby born in a manger. So, here's some application for us. Christ gives us this example of humility, cross point. He gives us this example. He's the, he, he's the box for the Legos, right? He shows us what humility looks like in his own life. That his, his humility is shown through love and through sacrifice. And so we must consider this ourselves, cross point. Are you willing to go so far to sacrifice the things that are more valuable to you, like time, money, energy, in order to humble yourselves before others? 
His humility brought him to incarnation and even to death. So with that in mind, how, are you, how far are you willing to humble yourself in order to promote and preserve church unity? Because pride and arrogance will destroy church unity. Where pride and arrogance exist, church unity cannot coexist. It will destroy it. It will destroy it. And not only that, it will wrongly display and communicate the character of our Savior. We will be a terrible witness for the world if we live in pride and arrogance. And so the phrase, I'm too good for that, I'm, or I'm, I'm, too, I'm too big for that, or that's too below me, that's actually a phrase that probably should never be said by a Christian. I don't know of a time where that fits in. I'm too good for something like that. I, I'm, too, I'm too big for that. I, no, I'm too... I'm, no, look, I, I got too big of a job for that, something like that. I don't, I don't plunge toilets. No, no, I don't open doors. No, 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 I don't vacuum. No, no, I don't do that. I'm too good for those. I don't, know, I don't know a context where that phrase should ever come out of a Christian's mouth. I'm too good for that, or I'm too good to do that. Not only does Philippians 2, 5 through 11 present us with an example of what humility looks like, but it actually presents us with a biblical principle that actually happens across Scripture, and it's this, is that the humble will be exalted and the self-exalted will be humbled. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So in Jesus, in Jesus humbling himself, we see by verses 9 through 11 is that he is exalted by God the Father. And that this is presenting us a biblical principle, is that if we go throughout this whole life, well, we're self-exalting ourselves, we're living in pride and arrogance, and basically living to make us known and make us famous and make us big, then guess what? That is going to come to an end. The self-exalted will be humbled. But those who live humbly and mildly will be exalted by God because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so this morning, I, I, hope, I hope you hear the gospel in those words. That this is a warning to us. Humble yourselves now before Jesus. Before Jesus humbles you on the last day. That this morning, Jesus humbles, lowly, meek, mild, gentle, compassionate, just, opens his arms to give. We see that in verses 5-11. through 11. He's not desiring to keep and to hoard and to hold on to things. And to morning, if you need grace, which we all need grace, if you need truth, which we all need truth, you can find that in Jesus Christ who has come. He's lived the perfect life in humility. He's died the death that we deserve, and he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father through his resurrection, and he will come back one day as Lord, and he will exalt the humble, and he will humble the self-exalted. Let us pray. Jesus, right now I pray that in West McKay you would kill my pride. You would kill my arrogance, God, because it, it does live inside of me. And so I ask, God, that pride and arrogance is such a tempting thing. But God, I pray that all of us in here at Crosspoint Baptist Church, as we seek unity, that we pursue humility, God. Because unity cannot happen without humility. And that, God, you would humble us, humble us this day before we stand before you on that last day.
Let us not live in pride. Let us not live in arrogance because it is not reflective of who our Savior is. Jesus, thank you for showing your humility in your life, your death. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning as the band comes back on stage to lead us in our final song, I hope that this Advent series has been encouraging to you. It's been encouraging to Shane and I. And again, this morning, if you would like to speak with a pastor, please find David, Jim, or myself. We would love to speak with you about this good news of Jesus Christ that you can have this morning.